Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we get historians into God mode. That way they're never brought down by myths. The podcast where our heritage community rage quits polite discourse. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I'm here, as ever, with my good friend and regular history geek, Kyle Glover. Hello. And this week, dear ragers, we're back to the 20th century in the secret world of the Codebreakers, a group of people who are much engulfed in myth and legend. In fact, they have an enciphered appearance themselves. To decipher the hidden meanings this week, we are joined by historian, author and museum consultant from the National Museum of Computing, Gavin Clark. Gavin, welcome to History Rage. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Feeling angry? I'm furious. <laughs> you had, in where we were talking beforehand, to use the word triggered, so I'm expecting somewhat of a uh, critical error. Uh, but before we get into the deep code, can you tell our History Rages a bit about yourself and your work, your background, kind of what you're consulting on and what you're doing with the Museum of Computing? Sure. Uh, well, as you, uh, as you suggested, well, as you said, actually, um, I work with the National Museum of Comp- Computing. I'm an independent consultant, but I've been working with these guys for a few years now. The museum is the, uh, holds the lar- world's largest collection of working historical computers. That's 50,000 artifacts. The sto- story it tries to tell is that of wartime cryptography and also post-war mm-hmm. British computing. And um, my role is to work on interpretation, exhibitions, events, and basically deconstructing and presenting to audiences at large really complex technical material and putting that and putting kind of real world stories and people stories on that stuff. Um, in short, mm. I try to fly the flag for technology in a world that's dominated by history, that's dominated by royals and monarchs and battles and all that kind of Tudor stuff, which I kind of really haven't got time for. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I also something else they, they work on, which we're particularly proud of. Um, they do a lot of they've they've reconstructed a lot of all of the machinery we're going to be talking about this evening, working from scant pieces of their evidence, which they've um, developed over the years. And, um, yeah, they kind of they've been trying to correct the errors that people make, which we're going to be talking about this evening. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. errors that people make is very much our bread and butter or 
binary worked into our code. <laughs> so let's kick this off then, because uh, I think we've got a lot to go through, and I imagine that some of it we're going to have to go through again when we ask you to tone it down for us. I imagine. Um, but Gavin, would you please tell our history ragers out there what you wish people would just get over? The thing I should possibly, if I was in therapy, my consult, my therapist would probably say I'm the one who needs to get over this. But of course, <laughs> that person is wrong. Um, it's everyone else's problem. The thing that really triggers me is when I read this in books, it is the casual throwaway line that Colossus was used by the codebreakers of Bletchley Park to create, to uh, crack messages encoded using the German military system Enigma, which is just wrong. And I found that all over the place. I've been looking at secondhand books uh, at Waterloo in the book fair down there, and I found it in books. And I've even found it in the Blessed Imperial War Museum in glossy new hardback books, forwarded by certain prominent historians who've done a lot of big work with respect. I'm not sure if they can remain nameless, but you know, it might embarrass them if I drop their name here. Uh, so what it seems to me is uh, this is a zombie era that basically spans decades and refuses to die. I mean, people do their research on this subject. They basically reach for a book and they cut and paste this bit of text in and they don't bother to do any research about whether it's actually accurate. And the thing that really annoys me about it, apart from the professionalism of not doing the research, is what it does is it hides so much great history and stories um, and the people's stories and the heroes who were behind the World War II code break and that basically helped the Allies win the Second World War. And I, and I just want to really put that record straight. And it's something we've talked about at the museum as well, about how the hell do we do this? How the hell do we kind of, there's, how, do, how do we communicate this to the world? So that's why I'm here tonight, is to use you guys as a platform and get this out there and, and get whoever that other historian is to basically think about it a little more in the future. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming on then. And we can certainly assist you reach an audience of at least five. <laughs> that's a start. It's a start. Well, it was my mum, but, you know, she still counts. <laughs> well, notice well that one of those isn't yeah. Kyle. <laughs> okay, right there, Kyle. Do you want to dive in on question right. one? So, let's if we get straight into things, then, to make sure we're all on the same page. Um, mm-hmm. So, what exactly is Enigma, and what is Colossus, and how do these, how do these two things interact with each other? Okay. Well, the first thing I say is they don't interact with each yes. other. Um, That's Enigma. The point, Kyle. That is that is the whole point. I'm, have you been listening to any of this? <laughs> Should I just <laughs> right, right? Breathe, Gavin. Breathe. Okay. Here we go. I'm Zen. Zen. Right. So Enigma was used uh, by the German military during the Second World War to basically encrypt all of their most Morse code communications, um, and there was a lot of them. It was, and it's actually created. It's not like the Nazis went out and fiendishly created this thing. It was actually created in 1918 by a German engineer, a guy called Arthur. Uh, excuse me, I'm probably going to trample the the, uh, the names of people who aren't from this country here. So German and Polish names are going to come up in this. So Arthur Scherblus, I believe, is his name. He was on the make, and he decided to create this machine, Enigma, and he sold it for, to, the, uh, to the private sector initially, but then he realised he could make far more money by selling it to the military, which is precisely what he did. So it was adopted by the German Navy in 1928, and then by the Air Force, sorry, in 1926, and then by the German Navy in 1928, and then by the, uh, bizarrely enough, by the Luftwaffe in 1935. So the, the Nazis had actually relatively little to do with the adoption of Enigma, but they found it quite useful. Now, here's a question for, all your, uh, for your five listeners. 
Oh, I'm going to challenge them, actually. Um, you've probably seen a picture of Enigma, but you just don't realise it. If you Googled uh, Heinz Gerdian, who was uh, the general in German charge of the uh, invasion of uh, the Battle of France in 1940, there's a picture of him standing in the back of a truck, uh, black and white. That's him standing with a bunch of operators working an Enigma device. So you've seen one of these things. You probably just haven't realised it. Or if you have realised it, well done, you pat yourself on the back. But I imagine a lot of people think it's they, they're there for the tanks. They're there for the Battle of France. They're not there for the communications equipment. But there he is standing in the back of a truck and there's an Enigma there. And there's the operators there making it work. So you can see an example of one of these things in real life, as it were. Hmm. So what you'll see from that is it looks like a typewriter. And it's stored in a wooden box, so it's highly portable. So what was this thing? Well, <clears throat> in a time before computers, we had these things called electromechanical devices. And what it did was it used a series of rotors, like wheels, like cogs. And yeah. it used a plug board. And that was sufficient, and some other bits and pieces, that enabled it to scramble plain text messages into strings of incoherent characters. So X's and Z's and Y's, things that you could just look at and think... What is that all about? And I've seen some of this intelligence. It really is quite a head splitter. And it's all in capital letters as well, which as we know on text and email is a no-no. So how did that work? Well, in its simplest terms, it, what you had was the operator would sit there and they type. And say you had the, the character J. They would, it, if you type J, it would produce a Z. But it would, if you type J again, it wouldn't produce another Z. It would produce a completely different character like a B. So that's kind of very simply what you would get. To add mm -hmm. further complexity to those coding operations, the rotors, those wheels, could be taken out and swapped around. Enigma was capable of 159 million, million, million possible settings. To do, you had to, uh, the key to, to, go to, to actually trying to figure out what those settings were was to try and work out the key. So the Allies had to figure out what the, there was a specific key. What is the key setting to, to actually figure out, you know, what that encryption code was? So think about that number, 159 million, million, million settings. And I've got to double check, million, 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 that's three. Unsurprisingly, yeah. the Germans thought Enigma was unbreakable, and it pretty much was. Now, to make it even harder, the Germans had about um, 50 networks of Enigma, which all had to be broken individually. So you couldn't just break Enigma once. You had to break it across separate networks. Remember I said the Army, the Air Force and the Navy had adopted it. The Army and the Air Force used, used a version of Enigma that had five rotors. And the Navy had one that used eight rotors. So the, the level of complexity is just incredible. Those yes, rotors, so if you're talking, you're talking there like 18 zeros of combinations just on the three rotor one. Just on the three ones, yeah. So wow. it's, co it's complicated. This is, this, is, this, is, this is next level. This is beyond next level maths. To add a further level of complexity, the Germans rather thoughtfully changed the rotor settings every single day. So again, you didn't just break it once. You had to break it every single day for every single messages. That's 159 million, million, million settings for a message. And Let's those settings, I'm right then, gonna, so they get changed every day. Yeah. We've got different settings for, for different areas regions so if you're if you're working in normandy you've got complete different settings to people yeah. that are occupying poland yeah and so, so you've got a complete different set for where you're going um are we talking different sets for then the navy the luftwaffe yeah the wehrmacht the waffen ss so yeah. it's a good, good point because I, I i mentioned the the three branches which we're all familiar with but the intelligence networks had like had their own the advert had their own enigma as well so 
it's like an onion, a level of complexity. And Bletchley Park was receiving up to 5,000 enciphered Enigma messages a day. How do you even know where to start? Well, that's the question. It's all probability. This is where this is the genius. You, we look at the story on, say, um, the uh, Enigma film, the Benedict Cumberbatch, which inevitably is going to come up. Um, yeah. What you don't see is the, the sheer, the raw piles of messages that weren't broken. We think they got everything. And we think it was a very precise art. In many cases, it was, it was kind of based on, there, was, there, was, there, was, there had to be a sense of assumption about what were likely to be the most valuable messages and based on where they came from and who was sending them and what the contents might be. So there was a certain amount of probability of narrowing down which ones were going to break. And you can imagine all the other messages that basically were, had to be just cast aside and were never known what was in them because they didn't have the capacity to break them for the reasons we'll come on to sort of later yeah. on. So that was it. So it could take anything from a day to break some of those messages, depending on what they were. Others took weeks. Some were never broken, as I said. So that's, that's Enigma. So focus your mind on Enigma. That's, Enigma. that's, the, that's the German machine that encoded messages. Yeah. Come over to the Allied side and you've got Colossus. Um, now, this was the name for a computer that was designed to break messages from a different encoding machine, not Enigma. And Colossus is unique for three uh, reasons, really. One is it's the world's first electronic computer. It was the world's first electronic computer that was invented for one specific task and one task only, and that was to break the messages sent between Hitler and his high command. And secondly, it had a profound impact on military outcomes. So it wasn't just a computer. We can actually, we can actually look back on some of the actions that... Uh, that took place in the war and say, yes, this thing was invented and it had this impact over here. So it's quite a special computer. But I describe it as a computer, but it's not like a computer you would see today where it's got, you know, uh, a keyboard and it's got a screen. Yeah. This thing was seven feet high. It was 17 feet wide, and about 11 feet deep, and it weighed five tons. If you go to the museum, National Museum of Computing today, you'll see the, re the working rebuild of, that they've done. It sits in its own gallery in one of the blocks. It's huge. It's like a series of frames. And on, within that metalwork, you have um, 2,500 vacuum tubes, which were used for like computer circuits. And you have yeah. a plug board and you have spools for handling tape. So what did it do? This is another myth that has to be busted. Colossus didn't encode, decode messages. They didn't put messages in and transcripts came out the other side. What it did was it was used to find those key settings that I mentioned earlier on Enigma, but to find the key settings on another machine called Lorenz, which we'll, I'll kind of come on to, which is really quite interesting as well. So if I've got time, just briefly, how did that work? Yep. If you've got, we've got this computer, it's made of all these kind of like these valves, which are like light bulbs. They were used for electronic switching. They were like today's equivalent of the silicon chip and the, tran the earlier transistor. So what would happen was a radio message would be intercepted. It would be transferred to a strip of paper tape with these holes were punched into it, five holes wide. And that tape was put into a loop and it was run through Colossus and its message was picked up by an optical scanner that read at 5,000 characters a second. And Colossus was programmed to perform a mathematical calculation. It would perform 100 mathematical calculations simultaneously across the five channels, those five dots, and across a matrix of two, uh, a five-character matrix as well. And it would do all that in 200 milliseconds. And it, what it was doing, it was doing, it was trying to work out probability. What was the probability of 
the key setting. So it wouldn't tell you, yes, it's the answer. It would say there's a 50% chance, it's, 50% chance probably a bad example. But it basically would give the code breakers a list of probable settings for the keys for that particular message. So again, get it, let's get it clear. It is not, the messages didn't come in and, and decoded messages didn't come out of the side. It was one step in the process to decode messages. And that was finding the key settings. At which point, that, those key settings would be then handed off to another machine at Bletchley Park called the Tunny, at which point those would be fitting and attempts would be read to then try and work out what that decode the message. That's when the yeah. decoding process would start kicking using the Tunny and, and humans as well. So it was a very, it was a very complicated process, but what it did, the brilliant thing was it sped up that time of finding those keys and that decoding process from, from a matter of weeks to a matter of hours. So it was, it was a real step change in what was done. So it was a, it was an early form of computing. So that, in a nutshell, is those those two machines. Thank you. So, as we've established quite firmly, and the Colossus isn't used to break Enigma, but then what does, and how does that work? Right. So we've let's let's go to questions. So we've got two machines. Uh, one is German, the Enigma, which encodes messages, and we've got one other machine which decodes messages, which is Colossus. But the, the twain never meet. Yeah. It's got a lot of complexity involved. As we saw, it's got this Enigma has 159 million, million, million possible settings. Fleshy parts getting inundated with all these, these thousands and thousands of messages pouring in. The war is on. The, you know, the, the, the brass need answers, you know. And it's early in the war as well when Germany's on the front foot as well. Yeah, so, this is all Battle of the Atlantic stuff where this is really focusing, isn't it? Well, what it is, yes. I mean, if you, when we get into the timescales, it's early 94. So the, the, the Germans have torn through Eastern Europe. And that we've, we've yet to get to the Battle of Western Europe. During this time frame, this is when the next machine is developed. This is the machine that is used to decode or help decode the, uh, the Enigma system. And the machine that was used for that was a machine called the Bomb. And the Bomb's job was to give the code breakers of Bletchley Park, again, a bit like Colossus, a range of possible settings that they could use to find out the daily key of the day. Again, the key, not of the Enigma, but of this other machine, of the Lorenz. And it used quite an ingenious way of doing that. And again, you can go to the museum and you can see a, a working example, another reconstruction, a working reconstruction that was, that was pulled together through scraps of information by dedicated volunteers over a period of 10 years. They, they built the parts from, from raw materials. It's incredible work. Um, this machine weighed a ton. And it's huge. Again, it's kind of like, it's like a huge old TV, uh, bigger than a TV set, like the old style 1970s, but it's several like volumes larger than that. And it weighs a ton. It's made of metal, but in its metal frame, it's like row upon row, these rotating drums. If you listen to it, it's quite beautiful. It's like an ambient clicking sound. They just click round. Um, 36 sets of these rotating drums. Again, it's another electromechanical machine. And what its job is do, its job is to mimic Enigma. And that's what it does, but kind of in reverse, so they can work out the key settings. And so um, the three germs would reproduce the operations of Enigma. And they did that partly through the way it was cabled at the back. And the cabling at the back was it's like plug board again. It was programmed using the plugs to, based on the code breakers, best guesses of what they thought that message con- would contain. Yeah. And and again, uh, it's again a sort of probability. They were looking for for sort of common words and phrases in the message. So and this is something the German military were very, very good at doing during the Second World War. Common phrases and message would come up. So it could be a greeting. It could be a, a salute, obviously, like Heil Hitler. It could be the weather report. So they were looking for these words and phrases that would pop up that they could identify 
using these these uh, rotors. So the bomb was wired to operate. These little sets of three drums would operate, would replicate an Enigma machine in these sets of three. And it was it was plugged up by Wrens. Women's Royal Navy yeah. operators would do them. And there was about, there was a, about 1,600 of those at Bletchley Park doing that kind of thing. And it would test all the configurations in about 10 and a half minutes, uh, which was a huge advance. And it would do that. By the end of the war, Bletchley Park had 211 of these machines. So you can imagine the scale of code breaking yeah. or key finding has now jumped exponentially i suppose so 200 of them over the course of the uh, over the course of the estate that's got to take up a lot of space well you can imagine how big bletchley park is and they were housed in all these these huts and buildings yeah and they went they scaled up quite quickly from like say one in uh, i think it was march 1940 to 211 by the end of the war and um yes yeah, incredible and they were manufactured by a british company at uh, btm uh, which was a former british manufacturing company that went on to be bought by other stuff but yeah it's incredible scale of operation this is why when we talk about bletchley park as um, a decoding factory so this is this is what we're talking about this scale yeah. of operations and am i understanding this right then effectively so the the wrens come in we we have a message yeah and they're going to set up the bomb and they're, they're going to read, they're going to look at that message, look at say where it came from, uh, and think, okay, that probably is a weather forecast because it came from a naval base and was going out to a ship. It probably weather information. So we're going to set this up looking for all the keywords that we usually associate with mm. a weather forecast and then see if something comes out that's vaguely sensible as a result of that. So the bomber then gives you a list of possible keys for that. And then you have to go and take that to an actual, an actual Enigma machine, don't you? And well, then run it through that and type it. Well, they, what they would do was the, um, there was a series of, uh, menus at the back of the bomb, which would be, uh, would have been created by, um, I suppose, well, by the coders themselves. It was, it was programmed on a hunch based on these menu settings at the back, which the, the REN operators, would do the wiring they were with the, the wrens there was a lot of them they were kind of handed this stuff like you, you program it in this certain way looking for based on what the the code breakers thought were the likelihood of yeah the words occurring in them in in those yeah. messages well but it still needed a whole load of people with actual brains to kind of do that so again like where we said with colossus this is not a case of feeding in Mm. A, a message and getting a translation printout. Right, you know, we're not talking Google Translate here, are you? Even when you've no. gone through what the bomb's doing, you still need actual physical brain to to decode this. Am yeah, I, right? I mean, yes, I mean, they they had a lot of Bletchley Park was known for. Uh, they had an amazing number of people. They had mathematicians, they had linguists, they had uh, chess players up there who were looking for, uh, you know, patterns in words. I mean, the incredible thing about this is just how mathematically based code, coding was and the probabilities they were looking for. And again, this concept of don't think that they were breaking every single message. Again, it was down to waiting, the probability. How important was this message? Who'd sent it? What theater had it come from? What could it be talking about? Because even though they had 211 bombs, there was a, there was thousands of messages still pouring in, which would have gone probably untranslated. Um, mm-hmm. and this is one of the stories of Colossus. It was, they were quite overwhelmed by, they just, at one point, especially, they lacked a, a number of people and they were, they, they had two 
uh, Colossus and the second one came online just, I think, about shortly before D-Day. And then after that, they ramped up quite quickly. But for a long period of time, when they run up to D-Day, they had one machine that was uh, was sifting through this mountain of intelligence and not just in relation to one theatre of action. It was, as we'll, just, as we'll come on to, as I get into a little bit, the Lorenz a little bit more, um, this was across the whole of Europe. I mean, the Lorenz network stretched across occupied Europe. I think it was about 30 networks again. So again, they had all this traffic coming in. What do you prioritize? What do you work on? And again, this is the industrialization aspect of Bletchley Park, having the right machine to computerize the, the scale of breaking stuff, which if people, if you gave this stuff to people to work out on paper, they, yeah. they couldn't have done it. They couldn't have done it. No one have even got close. But then no. again, you know, I'm like B grade GCSE maths. Yes. Yeah. And <laughs> not that good at crosswords. Um, so who creates the bomb then? And because it's not us. Mm. And why is it so special? Good. Uh, well, that's good. Uh, well, let me be a little bit cheeky and turn it around. First of all, I'm going to tell you why it's special because it leads into who created it. It's a slight reversal on the answer. But what makes it so special is a couple of, there's three kind of primary reasons, three reasons. And one is, um, is, I suppose is the headline point is the one I made about just the industrialization process. I mean, you're talking, this is the first time encryption or decryption and code breaking has, has reached a scale. Pre-war, it was, you know, handfuls of people and groups and departments in, mm-hmm. you know, intelligence operations and in military services. Uh, I mean, it, the ingredients were there, but it's the first time they deployed machines on a large scale. So it was shortening the time to find these it was important keys. And it was increasing the number of t- keys that could be could be found in a given space of time. So that was the first thing that made the bomb so remarkable. The second thing that made the bomb so remarkable is just, and this is where I can, my work really kind of like kicks in for me, is what makes it important in a real world context. Um, and if you look at the difference the bomb made on real military situations, you'll see what made it special. And there's some really good examples out there, which any even the most... I said you don't have to be a deep history a World War Two nerd to know some of these examples. For example, for example, it was the decoding of a bomb of an Enigma message using bomb that led to the sinking of Scharnhorst in 1943 on, in, on Boxing Day. Um, its position was found off the coast of Norway. Bizarrely enough, it was a bomb a breaking of a bomb message too that led helped lead to the sinking of the Bismarck in May 1941. Um, mm-hmm. And that was when um, a Luftwaffe officer was uh, radioed the Bismarck to find out about the health of a, co- a family member who was amongst the crew. And during that transaction, the position of the ship was found as being off the coast of Brest, I believe it was. And so the Bismarck could be located and sunk. The Admiralty, when they got hold of that information, uh, didn't believe it. They thought, you know, it was impossible for the for the, you know, the, the code-breaking boffins at Bletchley to actually do this kind of thing to pull this come off and the information was surely wrong but they were proved wrong when the when the location of the bismarck was confirmed so i mean they're two kind of like you know uh boys action examples from the second world yeah. war another great example is the intelligence of north africa i could get this go uh so you so so claude Arkinleek, I believe is pronunciation of his name. Um, he credits the success in North Africa to the breaking of Enigma messages. Um, he believes that without that, then Rommel would almost certainly have reached Cairo. When Mont- Montgomery arrived in North Africa, he um, was given intelligence that had been decoded that said that uh, Rommel was going to attempt to break through an unprotected flank of the Eighth Army around a place called Alam Halfra. Um, yeah. And he'd, he was able to beef up the defences there and he repu- they repulsed the attack. And then subsequently after that, 
you have the battle, the second battle of Alamein. And the final kind of cherry, I think, on this one is the fact that they were breaking naval codes all over the place. Um, they were finding the locations of wolf packs and the, and their, and their, um, where they were being, uh, basically the locations and their operations. And, Bizarrely enough, in 1944, the, the Germans, uh, they put together a committee to figure out why their U-boats were being picked off. And what they determined, they determined there was no way that Enigma could have been broken or machines could have been compromised. What they decided was that it was either it was acts of treachery or it was pure aerial surveillance that was leading to the discovery of their U-boats. So they had such confidence in the nature of Enigma and they couldn't have comprehended that it had been hacked, uh, broken using anything they had no idea the bomb existed. That they they yeah. they thought it was human means that they were being undone. So there's some. That's another reason why it's so special. It's like because it, ha- it effect- we can see because technology can be created and it can be rather useless. You know, not all technology has is can be useful. But here's some real world examples of how the bomb affected the outcome of the Second World War and, and, and saved lives. And then I think the final thing, or one of the fi- one of the things that's also remarkable about it, is the speed with which the bomb was created. I think we touched on this just now. Mm. Um, September, not, we all know this, the Second World War began in September. Well, officially declared September the third, nineteen thirty nine. Um, yeah. By that point, what was called the government the, the government code and cipher school, which is the forerunner of the GCH today's GCHQ, that was housed at Bletchley Park. They'd been aware of Enigma. They'd seen documents of Enigma, but they had no real idea about how it operated. This is September 9, by 1939. But by March 1940, they'd not only, they'd basically, they had delivered a working uh, bomb. And then, as we saw, by the mm. end of the war, they'd, in fact, they'd, they'd built 211 of these things. So in a very short space of time, they'd gone from like backwardsmen, as it was, so we might call them, on knowledge, on Enigma and how, on how it worked. They knew it existed, they didn't quite know how it worked, to having the, having gained the smarts to understand how it worked and build them and build them in bulk. And then I suppose finally, if we're going to talk, because this is why I want to turn it around, it brings us on to, you know, who, who created it? Well, we all know the name Alan Turing. He's the most famous, the, the famous, famous individual. I mean, if you've got a modern 50 pound note in your pocket, Alan Turing's on, on the back of that. Um, we've seen films about him, which are, you know, slightly contentious to say the least. Yeah. And he was a mathematician and computer scientist who was second, well, seconded. He was recruited from Cambridge University and he was put to work on breaking Enigma. So bear in mind, GCCS knew they had a problem with Enigma. They wanted it broken. Alan Turing, his reputation preceded him. People knew people. He was, he was, he was brought into Bletchley Park to find a system of breaking that. But it's interesting to note that, um, he wasn't the only person. Who did it? And what his brick, but what he did, and we'll come on to that because it's a really important yeah. point. That's one of my other rages as well. Um, for all Alan's brilliant work, there's, there's a lot of other people who get eclipsed. What Alan's kind of breakthrough was, and if you see the film with, with Benedict Cumberbatch, you kind of think maybe, oh, you know, it's like cracking the DNA code. Like, you know, there was a, there was like a, a light bulb went off in his head and suddenly it all became clear. Alan Turing kind of put together, uh, he was brilliant. He saw, he saw parts of the puzzle and he pulled them together. What he discovered was that, Enigma keys could be discovered by using uh, by comparing patterns of encrypted yeah. messages that were known that contained known portions of plain text, which brings us back to those those common greetings like Seek Heil or or what the weather's going or, or German greetings. So he rec- he realised you could do that, and then his next step was to realise a way about how you could automate that or you could mechanise turn that 
wreck that knowledge into process through mechanized means to, to break the key to find out, you know, what they were talking about. So that, that kind of takes me through in my, from my perspective, the brilliance of the machine, why it's, why it's, why it's so, uh, why the bomb is, is so great. And as I said, you know, and it takes us on to who created it or one of the people who created it. So basically, we've gone from being aware of Enigma at the start of the war, mm. and we've actually put together the means to start deciphering this, mm. really, before we've actually got our arse in gear to try and go and help Poland. That That is an impressive speed. Yeah. I mean, the, the Polish connection is interesting as well, and it's, it's interesting you mentioned that, but um yeah i think that the british were aware of enigma like i said but they could see they'd seen pictures of it they'd seen documents it's like looking at a car but not knowing you know how the engine works which if you're an engineer is not very good so <laughs> yes while while poland was was falling alan turing went to uh the british knew they had an issue and they went and turing was working on on the enigma on the bomb sorry Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Coming from that point where you know, we can build what we like, but we actually still need how this code works and hmm. uh, and getting a machine. So the, there's a lot of debate over it. Although I say debate. There's a lot of myth and legend surrounding like who gets Enigma machines. But as I understand it, there's a very strong Polish connection to that. There's a strong Polish connection, um, and there's another there's another man we have to mention as well who gets eclipsed as well. Um, so let's remind me. Um, I'm going to make a mental note of that. So we'll take the, the Polish question mm-hmm. first. So so we have um, three Polish mathemati- mathematicians for helping us get um, a start really to a great extent. Now bear in mind, Poland's had a bit of a difficult history after the First World War. Well, it's had a difficult history for, for, for centuries, but the First World War was a time when it broke out for free from the Austro-Hungarian Empire and from uh, from Germanic control, and it's become an independent country for the f- first time in, in a very long time. And they've got a very... They don't view the Germans... Well, they're very suspicious of what the Germans are up to, rightly so. So we have these three Polish mat- mathematicians who kind of uh, come into the story. Um, now, this is where my weakness in Polish is probably in a... Uh, the untrained ear is probably going to like become to the fore. Um, That's okay. Jenny Grant and Alina will come and crucify yeah. you. So. <laughs> okay. Um, so Marion uh, Refsky, Henrik Z- Zagowski, and Jerry uh, Rajiski. They're the three well Polish. Done. They're the three Polish names we have to bear in mind here. So Refsky, uh, he worked for some. They, all these three guys worked for something called the Polish Cipher Bureau, and. 
Yeah. Refsky was given, uh, very early on, he was given um, a commercial Enigma. Bear in mind what I said about Enigma was a, a commercial machine that ended up in military uh, hands, sold to the military. He was given, uh, Refsky was given a, a, a commercial Enigma, but it lacked a plug board. And the plug board was really the important thing because for all those those 59 million, million, million combinations I told you about, a large part of those were down to the plug board, which is literally what it sounds like. It's a board, like a bit like a the telephone operator. Uh, yeah. You see moving plugs around. It helped kind of like direct the, uh, the, the, electric, the electric current, which affected the characters that were produced. Um, so he was given one of those without a plug board. He was given some intercepts and... Um, he was given a bunch of documents that have been obtained by uh, by the French um, from a German spy, obtained via, via the German spy uh, some years before, I believe. So rather cleverly, Refsky figured out um, that he managed to figure out how the wheels and the wiring of Enigma worked. And also cleverly how to express that um, as a series of mathematical equations, which is really important. It was so good that by 1934, the, Pol- the Polish were able to make the... Uh, build their own Enigma machines themselves. Uh, back to the analogy of being an engineer and you're looking at a car but you don't know how it works. What it lacked was knowledge about how to encipher a message. So they, it was about they could make it do stuff but they couldn't encipher messages. And that's where these uh, other two uh, Polish mathematicians come in, Zagowski and Rajitsky. Um, they created all these kind of inventive techniques to help find the settings. What happened was this led to the production of a machine called the Bomber which was a Polish electric and mechanical uh, device, uh, which would automatically start figuring out uh, the rotor positions. The Poles had achieved this by 1938. And that, bear in mind, this is 1938. The the British are still trying to figure this stuff out. And by July 1939, they had been, well, they'd been in conversation with the French for some time. And there'd been meetings between the British and the French and the Poles. And um, they could have been warming to each other. And by July 1939, bear in mind the war is about well, five weeks away, the Poles gave the British and the French everything they knew about the bomb. So bear in mind they've made them, they've got the mathematics, they've got the kind of theory about how it works, and they, and they basically gave GCCS everything they kind of needed to get cracking and, and build their own machine. It just uh, it gave the engineers, you know, the stuff they needed to so to start building the stuff as well. And this is what came to be Turing's machine. Now, but Turing, importantly, by the time the Poles handed it over, um, the Germans had made so they made some subtle changes to their Enigma. They'd increased the thing. I think they'd increased the number of wheels. Um, they changed some other aspects to it as well. That suddenly, what the Poles had was uh outdated it couldn't function anymore so they kind of had for one reason they wanted to give this stuff over to the allies to france and britain which is what they did it gave uh it gave uh Bletchley enough to work with turing took it to another level which is he recognized this how to look for these patterns of text in in the code breaking system and, and and worked out the mathematical reasoning behind that a way to build the the bomb as we as we know it became from yeah. that so yeah so um they did a lot of important work and they helped pull the british up to speed very quickly which is why suddenly you went from summer of 1939 not really sure what we're doing to by you know we've seen one we don't know how it works to by march 1940 here you go here's a bomb for you now the other and the other guy to mention i think we, we've really got to bring up here is mm-hmm. is gordon welshman he's a mathematician just like turing he came from cambridge what he did was 
he created something called the diagonal board, um, which mirrored in the, that plug board that I mentioned, that basically made that introduced so many fiendish complications into into the variables and the settings. And yeah. Welshman's it's it's highly complex stuff. It's his real electroengineering stuff. Um, his diagonal board managed to reduce the number of false positives that the bomb would find. So every time those um, those little drums are spinning around, they would stop when they when they thought they'd found something. Um, it would eliminate the number of false positives. Therefore, the bomb could keep going; it wouldn't keep stopping. And that led to um, Welshman's invention or creation was added to Turing's existing machine. And then that's why you have a second bomb that was created in August 1940, a machine called Agnes. And that became the bombs that went on to become the 211 bombs that we now sort of know. And that's why it's known as the Turing-Welshman bomb. But in popular culture, you know, you might know it as the Turing bomb or you might know Turing worked on the bomb, even if you know that much. So moving from bombs to Colossus then. Mm. So we say Colossus is not deployed to break Enigma. And we've hinted on this a little bit earlier on into what, in that the messages that Colossus is there to assist with. But what, what is the code then that Colossus is there to break? And why do we end up building that? Why can't the bombs deal with that? Uh, well, this is, this is really quite incredible. Um, there's a lot of interesting personal story on this one. Not my personal story, but the, the people who, who are behind it. And in a way, it comes back to this concept again of, finding message keys now i'm not sure did we discuss the lorenz yeah i'm trying to just uh, okay. this is your moment yeah, to do the lorenz. so the lorenz was rather like enigma in that it's a series of rotors and uh it is produced uh it's got about 12 rotors in it and bear in mind we had the um i think it was we said 159 million 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 possible settings yeah with enigma well Lorenz was created to encode the military communications of the German highest of high command. So you're talking uh, Hitler and uh, I'm not sure I pronounce his name, uh, uh, von Rundelstadt, who was uh, CNC of uh, the German Army West, who was in charge mm-hmm. of um, uh, who oversaw you know the German uh, defence of D-Day, as it were, and um, Kesselring, who was in uh, oversaw the, uh, the attempt to repel the Allies in southern Italy. So they were using this massively. It, it, it was it was faster and it was more it was more secure. And what it was, it had twelve rotors rather than the eight up to eight which Enigma hit had. And it had five of those were for encrypting, plus two extra rotors that would put in an additional set of random keys, plus a machine rotor, I believe, that would randomise the allocation of that second rotor. So it wasn't like there was always going to be a reliable second rotor. It would, it would as an additional random addition of characters in there it was capable of um 1.6 million billion possible settings wow so it's it's another level of just complexity which again you know you're sat there in Bletchley Park these messages started to appear in I believe it was 1940 and it wasn't until 1944 that the Colossus which was designed to uh, break the reins actually came online so you've got a good number of years there where you've got these highly secure messages that are going bouncing around europe for going unread i think we can assume mm. so this machine was called the lorenz it was the sz42 and it's the machine which colossus was built to tackle and it was the the, the, the nazis had them in it was it operating across 30 high frequency radio links um running from france norway to germany there's the hub of this network though was was um berlin as you might imagine yeah 200 of these machines existed. If you, if you travel up to the National Museum of Computing, you'll actually see one. 
It's on loan from uh, from Norway. Machine number 1137. It was used uh, at Lillehammer, which was uh, German headquarters. We believe it was used to receive the final surrender message on uh, instruction, rather, on May the 8th, 1945. So, yeah, so it was this highly secure system. Um, again, Colossus was created to figure out those those wheel settings um, and to overcome that randomness. And again, to give the code breakers this, I suppose you would say, this list of probable settings rather than the actual definitive. They could go and weigh and work out, you know, what was the most likely, uh, the most likely probabilities of key settings. So who actually built Colossus and why is it so evolutionary, especially when we set it against other wartime advances like, say, um, the rocket jet engines and rocket engines? Those sorts of things. Hmm. Well, it's a good question. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a good question. And that's one of the things about, uh, I guess that's why I do what I do, is because I feel like uh, technology, computing technology and, and, and such like, gets a kind of a, I suppose, gets overlooked. Because every, when we think World War II, we think, we think things like the A-bomb. And we think about, you know, the V1, the V2. And, you know, I suppose computers kind of seem maybe a bit humdrum, maybe, a bit behind the scenes. You know, they're happening in the background, but they had amazing results. And is, as we'll see, I mean, Colossus was one of those, one of those inventions that had amazing impact. So if we go back a little bit, so who, who invented it and, and what was its, its role? So let's spec back to 1943. You've got Bletchley Park. I said 1944, Lorraine's messages weren't tackled to 1944. That wasn't quite true. Um, Bletchley Park knew it was facing these these uh, new messages that were coming in, and they had uh, they had a system, a computer there, an electromechanical system called Heath Robinson, which had been built and installed. It was built by the te- telecommunications research establishment at Malvern, and it had been there since 1943. And it was named the Heath Robinson. I don't know if, if people are familiar with this after the, fa- the the illustrator who came up with these kind of wacky, crazy, very overly complex. Um, cartoons of of machines because yeah. people looked at it and thought that's an incredibly complex and silly looking machine but it was working but it, it was too slow i mean uh by comparison it was a bit slow and it was a bit cumbersome it was a reading it, it had two remember colossus had one tape uh heath robinson had two and it was difficult to call they had to be synchronized it was difficult to synchronize them um, they kept slipping and then you had, it was reading 2,000 characters a second versus Colossus, which is reading 5,000 characters a second. And then it required a lot of tape changes and it could read about all but five of the, to, to read all but five of, of the wheels. So it was kind of, it, it was, it was kind of slower. It wasn't as powerful and it was, it was quite a lot of maintenance to get this thing to, to work properly. So they approached something called the, uh, the GPO, uh, Research GPO laboratories at a place in northwest London called Dollar Seal. And for those those listeners who maybe don't remember Margaret Thatcher and privatisation and um, creation of British Telecom, the GPO was the general post office that used to run the phones in the UK, amongst other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and they used to have this um, research facility up in North London at Dollar Hill. And they were doing all kinds of crazy stuff. They were developing um, new ways of signalling and new forms of cabling. I mean, these are the guys that introduced the speaking clock as well, eventually. Um, so it was a big R&D facility. And Bletchley Park basically turned to um, Dollis Hill and said, look, can you improve on Heath Robinson? And the, the work of that fell to a guy called Tommy Flowers. This gets on to the invention story about who invented it. And Tommy Flowers, why him? He'd been working on improving. Uh, he'd been experimenting. 
and he'd been experimenting on phone networks. And he developed the idea that manual phone exchanges could be, could be uh, turned, well, uh, digital, an earlier form of digital uh, phone network and therefore faster um, using something called uh, valves, which we discussed valves. We've seen them in Colossus. But Tommy was kind of swimming against the tide. Conventional wisdom had it that valves were unreliable, which they were. But what Tommy's brilliance was, he saw them as not only just fast forms of, of switching. He, um, his, his, his genius was he said, that, yeah, they're unreliable, but only if you turn them off because you have to re, you have to boot them, turn them back on again. And that's when they blow. So basically don't turn them off. Um, so that was kind of what his theory was. And that's how he kind of, he put these, decided to put these, valves into uh, Colossus rather than using two synchronizing tapes. And that that gave it like a massive increase in the computing mm-hmm. power. Um, Heath Robinson had about half a dozen or several dozen, several dozen valves, whereas Colossus had 2,000, finally it would have 2,500. So a massive increase in computing power, switching those mathematical operations, running them really fast, you know, as, as it was expected to. He spent about 11 months at Dollar Seal building this thing. And Colossus, the first machine, arrived at Bletchley Park in 19, in January 1944, and it was up and running, decoding messages by March of that year. And Tommy's the real hero of this story. And this is what really I find, I think at the museum, we kind of have this, I suppose we, we really want to do more to bring out Tommy's story, because he gets overlooked a heck of a lot. Everyone, you know, Alan Turing rightly gets a lot of publicity. And there's some, if you know the story of Bletchley Park, um, you know there's some of the big names like uh, Dilly Knox, and, you know, there are other people up there. But this guy was a real outsider, I suppose. He was born in the East End of London. Um, he was, he had a working class background. He was a son of a bricklayer. Um, he did an apprenticeship in mechanical engineering at the Royal Arch, uh, Royal Arsenal in Woolwich. Um, he did a degree in electrical engineering. He joined the General GPO in 1926 and it moved to Dollis Hill in 1930. And so mm. he's got this kind of outs- he's got this real outsider state, a guy, an engineer who really kind of cut his teeth. He loved the subject and he came in sort of tangentially into the, the military academic establishment, you might say, of Bletchley Park to, to have this brilliant invention of, you know, of, of Colossus. So he's the architect. He's the one whose story needs to be told. And there's actually a pub dedicated to him in East London now as well. Um, so it's quite a fascinating story, his life story. But that kind of brings me on to, I think, we want to know why Colossus mattered. And again, there was a couple of reasons why Tommy's work on Colossus mattered. And, and, and the first one is, you know, as we said, it was the, it was the, the world's first digit, uh, the world's first electronic computer, which is a heck of a first. I mean, we're surrounded by computers today, but Colossus would be preceded by several computers. There was a lot of work going on in computers at that time. So Colossus wasn't the first computer as such, but it was the first electric, electric computer. And it was first, it was programmable and it was digital. It couldn't store a program. Um, that yeah. would be, had to be loaded at every time. Um, and it was dedicated to just one task. One like computers now, obviously multifunctional all over the place. This had one job. And we know what that job was. It said it, it was, it was there to break the, these messages between Hitler and his high command. So that's one reason why it's particularly special. The first programmable stored program, the first computer that was, could have a stored program came along some years later in like 1948. 
I guess second reason Colossus was special and deserves to, it's up there in the Parthenon of systems such as the V1, the V2, if you want to put it that way, or you know the A bomb, the great military achievement, the hardware achievements of the war. It's just that um, that realization of what could be done with programming and power. The fact that's two thousand five hundred valves um, that Tommy realized you could do this. You can if you apply this to the mathematical problem, you will increase switching. You develop a fast computer. We can do this. And while his contemporaries were poo-pooing the idea of valves not efficient they'll they'll fail so that's another reason why his work is important why colossus was important as well and i think another i suppose my kind of the big point here is 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 comes back to the point i made about the bomb about the material impact it made on on the outcomes of the war um Mm -hmm. i think we're still trying to figure that out really i mean i've worked on some of those decrypts and and so the volunteers with the volunteers at the museum and we've been trying to figure out what impact it had and we did we had some success around d-day the anniversary several years ago i mean it it kind of what we discovered was that um if we just take d-day it was very good at basically telling the Allies uh, what they needed to know about the movements, the state of the German army in Western Europe at that time. Um, they managed to glean a lot of information on tank, movement, tank movements and battle formations. Um, and what they discovered by reading the, the, the decrypted messages was that um, the regiments, the forces in Western Europe had been drained of uh, capable and fresh soldiers and they'd been moved over to fight in Italy where they were suffering from uh, low morale and the battle readiness mm. was weakening. So they, they could see these, by decrypting these messages, they could see units and individuals that were moving out of France and heading over to Italy. We'd had as well recently, we'd had David O'Keefe on mm. uh, as well talking uh, talking about the Dieppe raid and its, uh, its link. And his big thing throughout both that episode and his book as well is the entire... The entirety of Operation Fortitude mm. hangs on being able to, as David said, read your enemy's email. Yeah, you know that's well. That, that's you that's can't correct. Be more important than that. No, that's correct. I mean, it was it was using Colossus. They figured out that the Germans, the, the Nazis, had bought the deception. I mean, if you read those messages, you see there's genuine confusion. They think they're saying things like, "We think the Allies will attack somewhere between." the border in Belgium and Normandy. And we think they're probably going to look for a deep water port. And um, yeah, so they were kind of very much in the dark about the timing as well. So they bought the fortitude. It proved, Colossus proved that the Germans had bought the fortitude deception. So he's, I mean, he's right. And the other, and I, I like to chuck this in as well. It's great because it brings us back to our old friend, our old friend Heinz, Gerdian, who as we we started, we picked up at the start of the story, is a on the the crest of a wave invading France in 1940 as a general. By 1944, he'd become the inspector of armour and was touring, you know, all these tanks and 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 uh, all the, the the hardware of of the Third Reich. Thanks to Fortitude, the confusion that the, the Allies had sown, um, there were about ten Panzer regiments in uh, France at that time, but they'd been dispersed across the whole of france i mean the germans you know if if they knew what we knew they'd have put them all in normandy but they didn't thanks to fortitude so yeah. gerdian undertook he was the inspector general he undertook a tour of all of all those 10 regiments uh, in april and may in 1944 and what did the german military do they transmitted his itinerary using uh, the lorenz network <laughs> which was picked up so the allies could then see everywhere he stopped they could see where there was a panzer regiment. 
And this was considered so important that the message was actually forwarded to Churchill so he could see his, they were, they confirmed evidence that the Panzers were not in the region of Normandy. And as we, I think on the day, as we, as in say on the day when it came to it, there was about one regiment, the 21st Panzer, that was about 81 kilometers, I think, from Normandy. And, uh, to show you how dangerous they could have been, that's the unit that stopped the Allies from seizing the, the, the town of Caen on day one. Yeah. They took about a month to get it. But imagine if all those 10 regiments had been concentrated in Norway, sorry, Norm- Norway, in Normandy, it would yeah. have been, you know, game over, but they weren't. And, and, and Gurdian's tour proved that it gave the Allies the insight they needed that they, the Germans had bought the deception. And then they learned other information as well. They learned how far that the bombing of France was in northwest France was creating fuel shortages and ammunition disruption shortages. And it was leading to the, the Panzers unable to train. And they could see that. And so the Allies had a very good insight into um, the state of, you know, just how weak the Panzer forces were. So they weren't an effective fight as effective fighting forces they could have been on paper. So Turing gets all the good press. It would be fair to say Turing gets all the glory. Hmm. Um, and we've mentioned one or two other people in the course of this episode. You know. it's, who else is involved that we should be, that, that we should be singling out as well, if anyone? Well, uh, there, I think we covered it. I mean, there's, in, there's so many people uh, who are involved in the Bletchley Park story. It'd be we've covered the main ones, at least in terms of the right. evolution of um, of the bomb and the bomber and the bomb and um, you know Welshman, for example. But there's people yeah. behind the scenes before that who developed the the um, the theories about how to crack the system. And you know it goes without saying all those uh, women wrens who operated the bomb uh, machines and also Colossus as well, who put in long, hard shifts, whose stories don't get told as well. Because we've talked about the creation and that's what we have. We're talking about a creation story here, but the application was, was done. The, you know, their stories were kept secret for so long. Well, thank you very much, Gavin, because that was, let's say, a solid debugging of the past. Uh, thank you very much. Feeling no. better? I feel better, uh, a little bit better. Um, hopefully, um, my therapist will uh, be out of work quite <laughs> shortly. But I've got a feeling this zombie fact about uh, Colossus Enigma is going to is going to limp limp on for many years yet. But hopefully, we can change that. Oh, well, whenever you need to come back and rant, you just get in touch. Thank you very much. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to know more, then you should start by visiting the National Museum of Computing uh, on the Bletchley Park Estate. And you can visit their website and find out details at www.tnmoc.org. That, of course, abbreviation for the National Museum of Computing. Uh, You can learn more about Gavin's work at his website, blendedpast.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at blendedpast. Well, once again, Gavin, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And if you're enjoying History Rage, then please consider joining the Angry Mob on Patreon. This really helps us meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, the invite to put questions to future guests, and the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week from all of us stay angry bye bye bye
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.